0: Good morning this morning. Good morning. Everybody awake? We've got a good crowd scattered around here. By the way, before we get started, I don't know if you're aware or not, but that song has some theological things that you, Bible trivia, I guess you could say, that most people didn't know. Did you know? Did you realize that that song tells us God's name? I know you'll be surprised. I come up with these goodies every once in a while. If you heard the words I just saying, it says, Andy walks with me, and he talks with me. So that's God's first name. So just keep that in mind. Next time you play Bible trivia, I'm not sure you'll win, but keep it in mind anyway. If you will, turn to 2 Timothy, chapter 4, verse 6 through 11. And we'll get there in just a moment. I once got to hear Dr. John Bajagno who was for many years the pastor of First Baptist Church in Houston, Texas, share a sermon at one of our SBTC, our Southern Baptist and Texas Conventions. It's probably been about 10 years ago when he heard this, but it, he used an illustration from his college days, the illustration that became, I guess I'm going to say, a haunting to me because here's what he said. While attending Oklahoma, Uni- uh, Oklahoma Baptist University in order to prepare for the ministry, he he went there to, and he met a girl, and uh, they got married eventually. His father-in-law, who was also a pastor, said to him, "You're better. You'd better guard. Excuse me. You'd better be careful and guard your spiritual life because out of twenty men like you starting out in the ministry." All but one will not make it to the end of the ministry. When I heard that, I thought, "Ah, oh, that can't be right. Dr. Bisagno said that at the time, he didn't believe that statement. So he wrote in the fly leaf of his Bible, the white pages in front of your Bible, the names of 24 young men who were on fire for God, just like he was starting out. They were soul winners, the ambition for their lives was to serve God vocationally. He said that one by one through the years he had to go back and mark names off because one young man maybe did some things he shouldn't have done and fell out of the, lost the ministry. And there was different reasons, of course. Discouragement, some of it. Uh, and other for other reasons that have driven these 20 men, young men, out of the ministry over the years. Now, it didn't happen one time. I remember him holding his Bible up at that conference where I heard him speak, and he said, Today, uh, there are only three names left on this list. That means 17 out of 20 young men that had surrendered to vocational Christian work had gotten out of the ministry totally. And I want to share with you this morning, first of all, the title of our message is How to Finish Well. And I want you to know that there's been times in my ministry, now, we've been doing this for a little over 30 years now. I'm one of these days going to get it right, so you all bear with me. But I have seen many young men come in Some of them I even talked to when they decided to go in the ministry. Some of them have stumbled and failed because moral sins in their lives, disillusionment with the ministry. I mean, it's a lot of things. At times, I even myself thought about pitching in the towel. But I remember hearing Dr. Bazzano say those words, and like I said, it, it haunted me because... I wanted to finish this race. I wanted us to finish as a couple, if we live long enough, to finish the race that God's given us. And I want to be that part that doesn't quit. That's my desire. But yet as I read statistics like that, and we'll see a few more here in just a moment, many fall out of the ministry. And I'm talking about many good young men and other workers for that. Not just the pastorate, but other places. Sunday school teachers and so forth. Dr. Bazzano said that he didn't believe it at first. And he wrote that in his Bible. But he said the last time, at the end of the sermon, he said there are today only three le- names left of the ones that surrender the ministry. That's scary to me. It's easy to get discouraged It's easy for other reasons. And we live in a day now where it's even more so because it's just harder to stay focused. It's harder to stay the the things we need to do. That was shocking. But I'm not sure it should have been shocking. Because if I've spent the 30 years over the years, I've seen now many good young preachers, many music people, many workers in the church. Have given up completely. And saying I need to get out of the ministry. It's time. Now some of them made mistakes. Moral failures and so forth. But yet a lot of them just got disillusioned. Wanted to make more money perhaps. I don't know the reasons. The fact is that beginners are a dime a dozen. It's terminators who are rare. We're good at starting things. If you don't believe me. I think for most of us, go open your garage door. Mine is full of projects we started several years ago when we moved here, four years ago, a little over four years now, that Judy never finished. I'm still waiting on her to finish them and get them out of there, but she hadn't done it yet. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. (laughs) There's not a cloud in the sky. Our culture puts a premium on starting, but not so much in finishing. This passage we're about to read here in just a moment is by Paul, and he's writing to young Timothy, a young man who has surrendered to the preach, the gospel, to be a missionary, just wherever God calls him. That's who he's speaking to. Listen to these words. Would you stand with the 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6 through 8. Listen to the words that Paul's encouraging him. Hey, don't give up. Yes, it's a tough fight sometimes, but don't give up. He says in 2 Timothy 4, verse 6 through 8, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which is the Lord, the righteous judge, will will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but to also who have loved his appearing. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear God, we thank you, Lord, for this passage you've given us and for the words of Paul as he writes to young Timothy. And Lord, I know there's people that have gotten tired of the... Of some ministry. It doesn't have to be the pastorate, but teaching Sunday school classes, singing in the choir, being a part of it, and all the things that go on, the functions of a church. But, Lord, we need to have a renewal of that commitment that we made. That Lord, we just ask you today to come into our lives in a way and just energize us. Because it does get hard sometimes. Not only in the preaching ministry, but in everyday ministry. And, Lord, we just ask you to open our hearts that we can today renew that vigor, renew that faith, renew that dedication, that, Lord, we're not going to quit. We're going to go forward. Go with us for the, this next few minutes. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> the sad illustration is this. Culturally, is a breakdown of marriage. We know that. That's probably one of the biggest problems our nation has. I read some time ago where there was literally a jewelry store out in Hollywood, so it's not too surprising. But there's a sign in the front window that read, We rent wedding rings. <laughs> I'm not kidding you. That was told as the truth. I'm, I'm presuming it is. Coming from California, well, better not say anything. There's people here from California, so we won't say anything. But anyway, but as I got to thinking about even in the Baptist life, the emphasis today is nearly exclusive about the initial step of Christianity. We focus on getting them saved, getting them in the aisle saved, save, joining a church, all these factions, on the beginning steps. We present the gospel of a good start. But the truth is, not all who start finish. And that scares me. For over 30 years now, I've tried to make a commitment with our family that we be committed. But I can stand here beside this sacred desk and tell you that's not even all true today. I've got a son that is, was preaching, speaking all over the country, and everything, all over the area and so forth. And today he doesn't even go to church. My own son. I pray for him every day. I hope you'll do the same. But that's what we face today. It's challenging. Young people find things to do that seem to be more interesting perhaps. When the Paul wrote these words, he was in prison in Rome for the second time. He was not under house arrest this time. He was in a dark dungeon, kind of a hole in the ground is the best way to describe it. Under the sentence of death. His life was going to be put to death. He didn't know when. He didn't know what day they would come for him. He was in this, for lack of a better word, a dungeon. Buried, not buried under the ground, but under the ground. And he writes these words of encouragement that we just read to young Timothy. So Paul had something that he would not quit about. It's as though Paul pulled out all the stops to motivate this young Timothy. He used every metaphor he could think of about serving God. Here's what he said. He challenged Timothy Timothy to be a good steward. That is to guard the gospel as a treasure. He told him to be a good soldier and fight the battle. He told him to be an athlete who gives us the victory. He compared him to a husbandman who labors in the Lord's vineyards. He reminded him to be a student who gives himself to a lifetime of study and to be a servant. That's a pretty good list. I'm not going to ask you to speak out and say it, but how many of you would take that advice that Paul just gave young Timothy? Paul saw something about young Timothy that he saw that he could be a great man of God wherever he served. He may be the pastor of a large church. I don't know. He may be these different things, but he was encouraging not just vocation-wise, but live it in your life every day. That's what Paul was saying to him. That's what this whole book of Timothy is about, 2 Timothy. Paul mot- motivated Timothy not only to with his words, but also with his life. Paul used himself as an example. Now let me share with you. That motivation might not have fired me up. You know what Paul was talking about? He says three times he was stoned. Several times he'd been put in jail. That doesn't motivate too many people in my opinion. But he was reaching young Timothy, a young man that had surrendered the ministry. Not knowing where, not knowing what he'd be called to do, just letting God lead him. I hope that's the way most of them do. He became retrospective as he looked back on his life, and then prospective as he looked on his death. He was telling Timothy, my life is about over. My time on this earth is just about done. He didn't know when they were coming for him. It could have been any hour. It could have been any minute. It could have been any day. Paul did not know when he was scheduled to die. And by the way, he was scheduled to die by that double-edged axe coming down across his neck, which is probably not too pleasant. Not too many people survived that. That's what he was facing. And so that's what he's calling Timothy. And Timothy knows all this. He's telling Timothy and encouraging him, And this is what we all need to be encouraged by. Timothy, the fight was worth it. I give up my life willingly if that's what it takes. Think about it. Paul was sharing to this young man, supposedly trying to encourage him, but he's fixing to be put to death any day. Paul motivated Timothy not only with his words but also with a life that young Timothy had watched him live. How many people are watching you live a life? Is it inspiring them or encouraging you to get out and stay out? By the world's standards, Paul's life had been a dismal failure. For instance, as a young man, he had thrown away the prospects of a great bright future. He had jettisoned through the prestige of being a renowned rabbi. He had been often beaten throughout his life. He had been shipwrecked. He had been left for dead numerous times. He had labored to the point of exhaustion. He had been hunted, despised, derided, ridiculed, and laughed at. Now he was cast into prison awaiting execution. Now, be honest. If somebody encouraged you with those words, would you be encouraged? Not many of us. As I sat there last night in the office putting the final touch on this, I thought, you know, if Timothy or somebody in this church would encourage me with those words, I'd say, here's your key. I'm out of here. (laughs) I'm not doing this anymore. But that's what Paul encouraged him with. But then he went on to say, as we just read in verse 6, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. A uh, A reference to the they used to have a libation offering where the pagans would pour wine on the sacrifice. And what some people think Paul was referring to is that after he died, they would pour this wine on him as an offering to their, their pagan gods. Maybe he was referring to the violent nature of his own impending death, being beheaded. It doesn't say. We don't know exactly. That would be an awful way to die. The executioners would take a man who was struggling and fighting and tie him down some rack or whatever it was and lay his head across, let's say, a big tree stump or something similar to that. They would take a double edged bladed sword, uh, uh, axe, and sever his head. Now, I don't want to get too gross because dinner time is coming up pretty shortly. But I understand if you cut somebody's head off, the blood just begins to spurt out. That's the kind of death that Paul was facing. All he would have had to done to stop it is say, wait a minute, wait a minute. I denounced Jesus Christ. But he was committed to serving Jesus all of his life. Let me just ask you. If that question came in your life, would you be willing to put your head on that block? We all like to say yes. I remember some years ago there was a saying going around that if you were arrested for being Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? I don't know. I'm not even sure about myself. I hope there would. I think there would be. But my life has never been called to the chopping block. As it was for Paul. I might change my mind. I don't know. Maybe Paul's thinking about his own death. And the little pouring out of his blood. That comes spurting out I suppose you say. Perhaps he's thinking about the nature of his entire life. That his whole life had been like a libation offering. Poured out to God as a living sacrifice. Service to him. I don't know what Paul was thinking. We don't know what Paul was thinking. I've got a funny suspicion that he laid it down willingly because that was just the type of person Paul was. Paul says, the time of my departure is at hand. Now, again, he didn't know when they were coming for him. He didn't know what day it's going to be. Every day he woke up perhaps thinking, this might be the day. This might be the time. The season of my departure is at hand. In the spring of his life, remember, Paul met Jesus on the road to Damascus. That made an impression upon Paul. Things changed in his life. Then in the fall of his life, he had been arrested for taking from court to court and taken from court to court. Now the writer of of his life before him says, the season of my departure is at hand. The word is used to mean, back in this day, they had these old ships. These, they'd go out fishing boats and so forth. and big, Not ships as we know it, but a, a good-sized boat. And they'd go out to fish. And it's a term that was used that they would tie these things up so they wouldn't break loose during storms and so forth. And that's what he's saying to us. He's saying, I am ready to be loosed. I'm ready to pack it up. I am being poured out of everything of me. These are the valedictory words of Paul's life, the benediction of a life well lived, as he motivates young Timothy. That's what's going on here. In fact, the whole book of Second Peter is about encouragement, not only to Peter but to each one of us. And let them let him encourage us through his words, knowing that his life is just almost at the end. How encouraging would you be to somebody if you were in that position? Paul began to reminisce about his own life. It's in this reminiscing that he we see the principles that enable Paul to finish well. The spiritual landscape today is littered with broken lives of ministers and music ministers and Teach Sunday school teachers and all the rest of the functions of the church. One of the greatest struggles we have and every church has is finding teachers, finding people to serve in positions. And we have those It's problems. You know what ought to happen when we have the time of year when we need Sunday school teachers and so forth? We ought to have a list that was so long that we'd have to, well, well, we'll use you next year. We can't get you in right now. But that doesn't happen to the average church. The average church has to beg and plead. That's why Miss Amber so good at it. That's why we got her doing that. See, she can make you feel guilty. I can't. But we've got positions we need to fill, seriously. And we don't have people step up. That's what Paul's talking about. He began to reminisce. But he wanted to be able to finish well. The spiritual landscape is all over us. Every church. I was a meeting at a meeting, one of our social meetings just recently and the subject came up about how that today and if you're here today and you're in this situation, I'm not complaining about you or anything else. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> but how that today many people come to the church regularly. But they never join the church. You say, what's so big deal about that? You can come as long as you want to. It's not. But yet, the ideal is when you come to church to begin working through the church. As you join the church, you become one of us. Even though you may have visited for two or three years, find a place of service. God expects us all to work. God didn't call you to sit. He called you to serve in every possibility. In order to finish well, we need to fight the fight for the faith. Paul fought for the faith. Don't misunderstand Paul's statement as egotistical. That's not that way at all. It's not braggadocio. It's not, I have fought the good fight, or I have finished the race, or I have kept the faith. In fact, the personal pronoun now is not even emphatic in that passage. It's not even there. It's simply understood. Paul is not bragging. He's emphasizing the nature of the Christian life and ministry. You say, but I don't work in the church. Well, then you should. We got places. You don't have to be a Sunday school teacher. I've heard people say, well, I can't, I can't sing in the choir. Well, you sing out here when you sit. Why can't you? Right? We need to fill this place up. Wouldn't it be more, more inspiring to I don't know how many seats up there, 15, sixteen probably. Wouldn't it be more exciting to see that place filled up singing songs? Lifting up the name of Jesus. No other name but Jesus. Do you believe that? When we look at Paul's life, we see a life of maturity. We're spiritually jealous of this man who was, has weathered the storms, he's like a spiritual teacher to us now in the Bible. There is a toughness about his life. We want Paul's maturity that speaks of unspeakable joy and peace and passes understanding. We want the ability to be content in whatever state we're in, no matter what, where we find ourselves. We look at this his ministry and it's expansive and persuasive and We want to be like Paul. We want his maturity. We want the product of his life. But this passage is not a description of the product of his life. He's speaking, when he said those words we just read, of the process of his life. And as every one of you here know, it takes a process to grow to a certain maturity. We've got a lot of folks around our area they may be 50, 60 years old, but they haven't reached maturity yet. I'm not going to say some sitting in this church today, so don't think I just said that. But, but this passage is about the process that produced such maturity in Paul's life. He's saying that in nature, the Christian life is not a life of luxury. It's so hard to come here and sit in these soft seats every Sunday. I just don't know if I can do it next week. Isn't that right? The, Christian, the nature of a Christian life is a fight. The nature of Christian life is not the invitation to prosperity and health. It's not an invitation to a life of ease that's free from all struggles and pain. It's a life of devotion. And carrying out the work of Jesus Christ. Whatever that may be for you. We have, I'm going to guess just real quick, 70 people in here today. I would venture to say that everyone in here does not have the same call of God upon your life. We've all got something he wants us to do. Are we doing it? He said it's a fight. We get our word agony from the word that's translated fight. It's an athletic word, really, what it is. Paul says that we have to be tough to the finish. I have seen over my life many, many church people and vocational people in the church that have quit the fight. It just gets too hard sometimes. I know it. I go to a church with a bunch of Baptists. I know how hard-headed they are. I mean, there, sometimes they can just be mean. But God doesn't call us to quit; He calls us to finish. There is, of course, the constant battle between the against the temptation of Satan. Paul is also the one who said, "That which I want to do, I end up not doing it. That which what I do, that which I don't want to do, I end up doing it." This is one of the greatest Christians in the Bible that just said those words. He says, I know what I'm supposed to do, but I don't always do it. Anybody here in that boat? And what I know not to do, sometimes I end up doing it. That's Paul speaking. You'd expect that from me, but not from Paul. He constantly fought the battle of the flesh. Then there's the battle against culture. All of his life, he was out of step with the culture. If we are to live for God, we will be out of step with the world, folks. Get ready for it. There will be no end of the line of people who will try to talk us out of doing what we should do. Everywhere. I remember one time this man that visited our church. I went by to visit him. And I said, man, we'd love to have you again next Sunday. And he said, why don't you come to Sunday school? we got a men's class that you really like. His, his response was, Sunday school, that's for kids. Let me tell you something. You get some of your best learning in Sunday school. And I'll say this. I don't want to embarrass them, but we've got some of the best Sunday school teachers you'll find anywhere. Sunday school is for that small group that you can meet together and learn each other. And grow together. They're the ones that when you have an illness or when you have a tragedy in your life perhaps or whatever it may be, they're the ones that most of the time come together and give you support. Sunday school is very important. In order to finish well, we need to fight the faith. Paul fought the faith. But then we also see, in order to finish well, we need to focus on the future. Paul speaks of focus on the future as the motivation for the, of the Christian life in verse 8. Listen to what he says. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. What day is he talking about? The day he dies. The day they bring that, they bring that axe across his neck. The day that he takes his, life, his last breath. I don't know what the day was to him at this time. But I knew this. No matter what it was, he was going to do his best to stay faithful and fight the fight. The word crown in that passage, verse 8, does not refer to an emblem of a king, but rather to the emblem of a victor that has won the victory. It was like the wreath that was placed upon the head of those who won the the race. It's... You know, you watch the old time games being played, of course, movies about them and so forth, and they always took this great big wreath, whoever won the hundred yard dash or whatever it may be, and would take this big wreath and put it over their necks. Sort of like they do horses in the horse races nowadays. That's the kind of picture it was. It was the most prized possession in the ancient world. As the runners ran the marathon, they would run through the streets and enter the Colosseum at the end of the race. They may have to run four times around it. You know, whatever it may be. I don't know. But the crown was always placed at the prominent end of the race so they could look at it. This was what they were going to win. That's what Paul's saying. I've already seen the prize that God's laid up for me. Oh, it's a nice one. I can't wait to get my hands on it. And that's the same thing he's saying to us. Paul is like a runner whose legs are aching. His side splitting from the hurt, the pain. Paul's like a runner as he just keeps going. Maybe his lungs will begin to burn. He's ran a marathon. That's hard, folks. Not that I've ever done it, but it's hard, I promise you. And Paul thought, I will not quit because the motivation of service to God is yet ahead for the future. Paul looked at what he gets out of the future. There is a crown laid up for me. I'm sure what he kept thinking about. As a good Christian life is profitable as it is to serve God, the motivation that we have at the end of the race ultimately is to meet face to face our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we're running the race for. Look what you miss if you don't pick up that race. The crown has was not placed. At mile 15 or mile 20, the crown was placed at the end of the race, just like God says it is for us. One of these days, I'm going to take my last breath, and the next breath I take will be at the Golden Gate waiting for me, and not the one in San Francisco either. It'll be there. And I hope to hear the words as Jesus opens the gate and welcomes me in. And says, well done, thou good and faithful servant. That will be worth the race. I don't know what's ahead of me right now. But I know this. That's waiting for me one of these days. He's motivating young Timothy by saying, don't get bogged down in the fight and the hassle of the race. The reward is at the end. Third thing we see real quick. In order to finish well, we need the fellowship of friends. Not only did Paul focus on the future... But he also maintained fellowship of friends. Guess what we meet here on Sunday morning because? Sure, we meet here to worship together, to sing together. But we're a family of friends. Sometimes, yeah, you get mad at friends. Sometimes they do dumb things. Sometimes you do dumb things. But all in all, we're still here for each other. only problem we have at this church is those people outside there hadn't figured out how good it is in here. And we need to tell them. The crown is not to be given to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Verse 8. Immediately, he begins to think of his companions. He thought about his friends. Oh, but I want them to experience this with me. I want them to be there. He tells them, be diligent to come to me quickly, for Demas has forsaken me, having loved his, this present world, and has departed for Thessalonica. Christians, for Galatia. Titus, for Dima- Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me in the ministry. And Tishikis have sent, I have sent to Ephesus. Now, let me back up a little bit and remind you of something. Remember Paul's first missionary journey? A young man named Mark Timothy was with them. They went on the missionary journey, and Mark got ready to go home. He got homesick, and he left. There was a missionary, mission trip coming up sometime after that, let's say two or three years, and they wanted to take Mark with them. John Mark, that's what I said wrong, didn't John Mark, who it was. Why to not you take John Mark with him? And Paul says, no, no way. I'm not taking him. He left us last time. We had to carry the extra burden because he, didn't, he couldn't live up to it. Now think of what a picture that is for us. We all know people, some of them from this very church, over the time have dropped out of church. Sometimes we think about them with, well, yeah, they left us carrying out the, that Sunday school all by ourselves. Paul went back and accepted him and says, come on. And he served well, John Mark did. See, just because somebody quits, don't give up on them. They're friends. We need to reach out to them. And then the last thing, in order to finish well... We need to forget the failures of others. Paul writes in that passage we just read, Only Luke is with me. Get Mark, uh, John Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for the ministry. Yes, Paul got angry with him. Paul got upset. Yeah, he left them with a burden. They had to carry extra boxes everywhere they went. They didn't get to ride buses, remember. They were walking everywhere they go. He left them with a load. He gave up the work. But Paul didn't give up on him. Even though he said no, as time went on, he began to see the value of young Mark as he began to grow. We know the story of Mark in that first missionary journey. John Mark was with him. We don't know. He may have been sick. We don't know why he turned back and went home. Nobody knows. It's never told us. We don't know what happened, but regardless, he turned back, as a lot of people have. As a month stretched into years and the years and the decades, we find Paul, now an old man, writing to Timothy, and he says, get John Mark and bring him with you, for he's useful to me in the ministry. Somehow, in the expanse of years, Paul had forgotten, or at least forgiven, Mark's failures. Some people live their lives as though no slight ever escape them. No injuries ever forgot. I've seen people, you hurt them 20 years ago, and you see them, and they're going to bring up, Hey, I don't know what you did to me. And guess what? In the ministry, and I speak of the ministry, as all of us. We're all in the ministry. In the ministry, you're going to get hurt. Somebody's going to talk behind your back. Somebody's going to say something that hurts. Somebody's going to call you something or say something like that. It's just part of it. And I'm not talking just the this passion, this work. I'm talking about the whole church. Christians, you're going to get hurt. I'll assure you that in some capacity. In the Los Angeles Olympics some a few years ago, several years ago now, Mary Decker was favored to win the women's 100-meter race. That's what I'm trying to say, race. As they came to the first curve, a girl from South Africa bumped Mary Decker, and she fell. As the camera focused on Mary's face, you could see the hurt of the injury of falling. It hurts on those old courts they have, tracks they have. She sat on the track and cried. But that reminded me of another Olympic runner, the great Presbyterian missionary, Eric Liddell, in the movie about his life called Chariots of Fire. If you've never seen it, I'd highly recommend you to. It's a good movie. He, too, was bumped during a race, and he fell. For a moment, he sat on the track, Then he got up and began running in his unorthodox style, his arms just a-flailing because he's trying to catch up. He didn't care what the style was now. His face was pointed toward heaven the whole time he ran. He ran and ran, and he not only finished the race, he actually won the race. You know why? Because he did not stay down. He got knocked down. If you've ever been a race like that, and I used to get to got to run track. I didn't have a much, not much sense, but I had two legs that could go pretty fast. Don't have those anymore. And you get bumped sometimes, and you fall, and it hurts. I promise you. Especially those guys that jump over those what are they call what were hurdles. hurdles. Yeah, I never wanted to be one of them because I wasn't tall enough to clear it. And so I'd hang my feet and fall right on my face, most probably. But these guys are good; they they know how to get over them. And here he was. The fact is, you're going to get hurt if you're in any kind of ministry. And if you're sitting here today, you're in some kind of ministry. It might be just attending church. People are going to hurt you. They'll turn on you. Those who never, who you never expected to. Stab you in the back sometimes will. You will get hurt. You will be bumped. Not everyone will love you in the ministry of any kind. Sometimes you have to go where the band doesn't play. But the key is to get back up. The fact is that people are going to fail you. There's going to be hurts, bruises in life. The Apostle Paul forgot those things. His final day on earth can perhaps be a few days after he wrote those words to Timothy. And I'm just saying, I don't know that. I don't know when he wrote it exactly. But perhaps it's just the last few days. Now, he didn't know it was the end, but he knew the end was coming very shortly. I don't know if Mark got there or not. We're not told. I don't know if Timothy got there. But there was a day when the soldiers came, pulled the apostle out of that hole in the ground and picked him up by his hands, pulled him out, or by a rope. I don't know how they got him out. Can you imagine? Paul said, this is it. This is what they're going to do. There was a chopping block. Maybe they had him blindfolded. But he could see out under it just a little bit. And he knew what was fixing to happen. He said a few words to his close friends. Maybe Mark, Luke, Timothy if they were there. Or whoever was there. He was strapped down by his hands holding so he couldn't move his heads on the block. And then a burly soldier raised the two blade axe above his head. Perhaps Paul, for a moment, thought he saw a glint of the sun on that axe. And then he realized the next moment that it was a shine of Jesus' face, standing waiting for him. The master said, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Would that be you today? Could you say those words? Let's stand together. Dear God, we thank you, Lord, for this time you've given us. As we come to the close of this service, Lord, I just pray that you would give us a vision of Paul and, Lord, what he meant to your work. And the, outside of yourself, the greatest evangelist we've ever seen. And, Lord, he was willing to do things that none of us probably would want to do. But, Lord, each one of us are called to do those things. Lord, remind us. First of all, the price that you paid to provide for us. But then also the price that you called us to pay. Are we faithful servants? Are we faithful in doing the work? Are we faithful in joining with the church to take it farther? I don't know. I don't know. But Lord, I'm asking you to, we're not to burden our hearts this morning. Lord, you know what this church needs. We need an explosion of your Spirit to put us on fire, to grow and to accomplish what you want us to to do. Lord, go with us these next few moments. We're not going to tarry long. This is your invitation. All these asks, we ask in Christ's name, amen.